0: Welcome to the Matthew Moran podcast. Here I sit down and talk with some of the best photographers, writers, designers, editors and publishers working in the visual arts. These conversations will give you an insight into the lives of creative professionals and industry experts. It's a chance to hear their story and personal journey in a rapidly changing, highly competitive but hugely exciting field. I've had the pleasure of working with many of my guests over the years and have learned so much from spending time with them. Not just working together on projects, but having conversations about what it means to be a creative freelancer, sourcing exciting work, sharing skills through partnerships, and not losing sight of your goals and dreams. This podcast is my chance to share these conversations with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. My guest today is Al Newman. Al is a musician, bookmaker, publisher, editor, designer and curator. He specialises in making high quality illustrated books that focus on Jamaican culture, specifically music, art and fashion. What I love about Al is his attention to detail, which he admits at times is his undoing, yet he never regrets his level of focus. And when you pick up one of his books, you will experience a flawless product. I caught up with Al in my garden studio in North London to talk about books, music and life as a freelancer. Welcome along. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Um, I've been badgering you for a few months to come on the podcast. You know, when I had the idea to do these, I thought you'd be an ideal candidate, given your um, work across many creative practices, really covers a lot of what this podcast is about. Um, And obviously we're great friends. I've known you for many years and kind of have a good idea of what you do. But when you sent through your CV, it's quite something seeing it all listed out. And um, yeah, I would made a couple of notes about you working as a publisher, a writer, designer, editor, now curator, do you call yourself a cultural historian as well, of some kind? mm mm-hmm. um, And not forgetting musician, too. So my first question really would be, how do you find time for
1: it all? Um, well, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, if I could... and I've said this to you many times, but I would if I could do what I wanted, I would spend all day listening to music and playing music. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the path of my life has taken has um, kind of led me into books, something I never thought that I would do, not, not something I didn't plan on doing. Um, <clears throat> but it's all, all all the books that I do definitely revolve around music um, which is really my main passion um so yeah finding time for it all is difficult um especially being a perfectionist um you know I, I sometimes think i spend too much time on small details but then later on i'm glad having done that because you know you get a, a rich uh, Fuller product at the end of that, um, but yeah, finding the time is difficult, and I work long hours. Um, but the thing is, what I do is what I love, um, so I don't always, I don't necessarily see it as work. I just see it as life. Mm. You know. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean,
0: it's yeah, you know, we spent many hours working together and talking about making books and the struggle behind it. And sometimes we kind of wonder, you know, why we do it, but inherently there's definitely a love for it. And, you know, going down to that detail, you know, I definitely, I think, you know, I learned a lot from you with that, the moment you start thinking about maybe doing something a bit quicker or cutting a corner is the moment, you know, you should stop thinking like that and just do it properly, especially something that's going to be in print for, you know, many years to come, it's it's really gonna, really, really gonna great. Um, but you know, you said if you could, you know, you'd spend more time
1: listening to music and and creating music. So why well, don't I, you... I just? I love music, and I love, I love learning about music, listening to music, playing music. Um, so I guess you know what what kind of drives me to do. work I do is that interest and that passion Mm. Um, you know I love going to record exchange looking through music that I've never come across before Um, buying you know cheap records that just look interesting and just learning about new music because music it's such a, a massive field that no matter how much you think you know, there's always a whole world out there that you you, you know that's kind of untapped um, so <clears throat> yeah um,
0: and where do you think you kind of got got into that you know because you know your background is sciences, you studied marine biology right mm mm-hmm. you got a first right mm mm-hmm. did pretty well yeah and then. Didn't go diving and didn't go exploring, we went yeah, I know straight into the field of publishing and and spe- specifically with with music um yeah. how did that journey kind of take place, or that decision
1: um <clears throat> I don't know, I guess you know you're kind of shaped growing up in school by the subjects that you enjoy and the teachers that you like, and so. I guess I showed. I mean, I I I, I kind of looked back on it, and I went into marine biology, um, and I didn't I didn't pursue that afterwards. Although some of the books that I worked on, I kind of brought in some of that research and knowledge, mm. and I definitely I definitely learned a lot about research from that from that university degree, but yeah, I kind of realized halfway through that degree that. I didn't want to work become a specialist in you know a kind of single cell plankton or you know you can become the world expert in in a science in science in in one very specific subject and I just decided I wanted to follow music so that's when I went into the first job I got out of university was for a hip hop magazine called Fat Boss Mm. Um and that and, featured on that was in a TV program. Yeah, right? that was in a TV program called Paddington Green because it was located in um the offices of Blues and Soul which is in Paddington Green on on Parade Street. Um and yeah, it was it was a crazy couple of years. <laughs> um, cuz it I, I my memory of that it started out where
0: you weren't being no one was being paid, right? It was is that right? You were, Yeah, it you was were very, curable.
1: very low pay. Um, it was in the offices of Blues and Soul and, you know, there wasn't, it was just kind of done for the love of the music. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the the <clears throat> the publisher of Blues and Soul, Roy Daniel, I guess because because of this exposure through Paddington Green, he put a bit of money into it and we got a very small kind of modest salary. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, I kind of learnt a bit about publishing from that. Um, And, yeah, that kind of led on to... That was the first step, really, in publishing for me. Yeah. Yeah. And despite kind of, you know, loving
0: the music, you were still making this kind of choice to go down this route of, you know, being a good editor being someone who paid a lot of attention to detail, you know, doing, did you do write Did you write as well for the magazine?
1: So um you, a little bit, but I definitely would say that I'm, I'm a much better editor than a writer. Mm. Um, I have written quite a lot throughout my career, but I do struggle with that. And I know that I'm much better at shaping other people's words mm-hmm. than, than my yeah, own. It's like a totally yeah. different skill, isn't it? yeah i find i think probably most people would find that you know if you give someone a
0: a body of text you always think you could improve it but starting something from scratch it's definitely what definitely what i struggle with
1: yeah in fact i went
0: on um i went on a writing course um this earlier this year i thought it'd be a good you know a good thing to do a bit of a good investment on you know it's an important part of books and you know my books are obviously mainly visual as as are yours but you know just to take that side of it a bit more seriously and and the guy that ran this course said like a really really good thing about writing and he said that you know if you're struggling to write or you find what you're writing is not good or you're just not happy with it he said the really important thing is just to keep writing like just keep moving forward and don't go back and try and edit things quickly, you know straight away after you've written one or two lines, just keep moving forward, keep moving forward and then at the end of it, you've got a body of work and mm-hmm. at least then that's when it would be good to share it with someone or you know someone who might have you know is not emotionally connected will have a better idea of how to structure and edit and um so yeah, it's a challenge definitely, but totally a different skill set and I've really appreciated working with you on that as well, having having those kind of fresh eyes and also just having someone to question like why you've said what you've had is really good. Mm -hmm. So that was Fat Boss and what happened in the end after that investment and the kind of, you know, because I remember you're quite you're quite young and on television and working for this and yeah, I guess
1: I mean, startup I, wasn't really a word back then, was it? But I guess that's what it was, right? I wasn't on TV that much. I was just <laughs> kind of a character in the background. It was yeah. mostly about the editor, Matt C. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I kind of learned about kind of various interview techniques, um, and you know, it came out once a month, so I learned about working to deadlines and. I learned, I guess, I guess I learned a bit about design and layout um, and a bit about typography as well. Mhm. So you're
0: picking this stuff up and finding yourself attracted to it. And then I don't know quite the timeline, but I was looking back at, again, your CV and just was just kind of scared by that big book that you did with Maharishi was like all the way back in 2001. That started, right? That started. Yeah. 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 And um, I mean, that was quite a a huge project to, you know, in Mm -hmm. terms of going from magazine into books. Mm
1: -hmm. Tell us a bit about that Maharishi project and how you got involved in that. Um, Well, that was a, a book I did for a clothing company called Maharishi, which was an encyclopedia on camouflage called DPM, which stands for Disruptive Pattern Material. Um, which is the name of the British camouflage. Um, And yeah, the editor at Fat Boss, Matt skills was friends with um, the owner of Maharishi. And so this book had already been started. And I found out through Hardy that it had kind of been started and then it was kind of needed to be finished basically. So I was brought in to finish that book. I think he initially said he wanted it finished within a couple of months, <laughs> and then three years later, we finished it. <laughs> but yeah, it was a clothing company, so it wasn't a publishing company. Yeah. So they didn't know there was no one there who knew anything about publishing, so it was really learning, the hard way, you know, about everything to do with making a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a that was a lot of work. Um but it's a it's a pretty exhaustive book on camouflage. And yeah, it's something I'm proud of. Although I look back now and I definitely think it could have done with an an edit. Um there's too much in there, I think. But that's probably kind of you know you talk about it's a good book. It's an interesting niche book. I mean mean, it's hugely on Ambitious project, wasn't
0: it? And I guess it's where your sciences background came in because it was divided into um, camouflage in the military, right? Camouflage in fashion and camouflage in nature. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. so
1: it's origins in nature, how various militaries took that on, um, you know, firstly to hide from the enemy and then then later on as a badge, you know. which country they represented through their camouflage that they wore. Mm -hmm. And then how that permeated into modern culture. Um, although it was artists who originally created it, so it was, and then they kind of reappropriated it within art, fashion, um, music.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then at this point, just as a little side, like I was interested in, you know, of all my guests interested in, you know, how, That kind of freelance career path is taken or chosen because for some you know they're very clear that they don't want to have a nine to five they don't want to boss in that way yeah um but then others are just they don't even really think about it they just kind of it's it sort of happens through osmosis or whatever you know they just go on this this path and seemingly obviously everybody makes choices minute by minute hour by hour day by day but you know at this point were you were you salaried there were you like on a contract or you know if it was supposed to be 2 months how did you convince the boss you know month after month after month that this needed more work more attention of course it's going to cost them a lot more money to produce
1: yeah i think he the, the boss there he just saw that i was doing a good job mm-hmm. and was happy with what i was doing but i was on i was on a salary there it wasn't freelance and You know, I ended up doing other things for the company. It was a fashion company. I ended up, like, sorting out wash care labels and stuff like that. (laughs) Designing stuff? Um, Yeah, and just doing various kind of odd jobs around the company that that weren't to do with this book. And so that's one of the reasons it took a while until I said, look, do you want me to finish this book or do you want me to do all these other little things that I was doing? Right. And so... It was, yeah, it was a long, it was a long process, but it's, it's basically because of the amount of research that was involved, um, and yeah, just the detail in, in that book. Mm. Um, Do you know if it's still available? Can you still buy it? Ah uh, no, it's sold out now.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, for anyone that, that is interested, who's listening, you can see some nice images of it on Al's website and probably in sold out stock on Amazon but yeah I can put that in show notes so after that you got all this experience in you know creating this kind of huge book huge ambitious project and then mm-hmm. you kind of stick in 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 the book world well obviously it's a theme throughout your career but I can't remember um which one came first cuz then you did this this fashion dictionary, which was also a kind of very attention to detail project. And then you also did this book on, on green sleeves. But yeah, talk a bit about those books and which order they came in and how you
1: got involved in them. And mm-hmm. um, well, after I'd finished DPM, um, it was my wife, Saki, um, who was a fashion designer, was approached by Lawrence King Publishing to put together a fashion dictionary and so she introduced me to them as you know as someone who could produce the text for this dictionary mm mm-hmm. um, so they the second book I did after DPM was it was called to Z, an Illustrated dictionary um, and that was an interesting project but it was really turned into a slog if you can imagine (laughs) writing a dictionary um (laughs) that takes a special mindset yeah uh and also you start off by defining well you start off by making a list of all the words you're going to define and then you slowly work through them and so you can always see how many you've still got to go Mm -hmm. so i just remember being on (laughs) <laughs> like letter C and thinking oh my god, there's so much still to come. There must have been some, do... some, some letters worse than others
0: right in, in, in that like yeah. if you get through I don't know yeah X
1: wasn't so bad yeah <laughs> but um you know there were, there were stages where I thought should I should I just give up on this but I uh, you know I, I'm quite thorough and I like to see projects through. But I definitely that turned into an experience. where It was like a slog, <laughs> you know, cuz it wasn't something I really loved to do, yeah. writing about fashion. Or and it wasn't something I was really an expert in. It was it was so uh, again, it was a lot of research. Yeah. But I guess good self-confidence as well. I mean, that's something
0: that often comes up in what well, always comes up in in the freelance world is if you you're know, going for things that are kind of you know maybe you're slightly out of your depth and you feel like well actually you know I can do this maybe there's a bit of ego there, you know or whatever or you think oh this could be this could be quite interesting let's let's see what happens I mean that's something that comes up a lot when I talk to, to other freelancers because you don't have that structure mm-hmm. um, and if you're a little bit brave and a little bit you, know, you believe in yourself and and of course great things can come from risks. I don't know actually what great things came from going through the A to Z of, of the fashion dictionary, but yeah. I'm sure you learnt a lot doing doing it and don't regret doing it because it was another pretty ambitious project.
1: Yeah, but just don't ask me about, like, what certain words mean now because it just <laughs> kind of went in one, just came out the other.
0: And then also after that, it was, did the, the Greensleeves book...
1: Yeah, came along. yeah. so then um, Stussy, um, clothing label again, um, someone there basically knew that I'd worked on DPM. Uh, they'd heard one of my mixtapes and... So at this point are you, I mean, how,
0: you know, how are you keeping, you know, the, the passionate side that you have around music going, you know, in amongst all this time? You know spent making
1: books well I was like um, playing in bands and DJing a lot mm-hmm. um, and yeah I mean it's like um, I love mixtapes I mean I don't do enough of them by by any means but it's like a book a mixtape for me it's like curating music bringing it all together it's like an exhibition and um, so I'd, I'd done a, a mixtape that someone from Stussy had heard and they wanted me to do a mixtape for Stussy. Um, but, you know, being for a brand, it had to be above board. You couldn't just... Well, at that time, I thought you couldn't just use whatever music you wanted. Sure. Um, it had to be cleared. So I knew people at Greensleeves Records, which is a British reggae label, and i suggested to stucy that we do it with in in collaboration with Greensleeves so that all the so that it was legit and mm-hmm. you know the music could all be cleared and the guy i did it for at stucy then found out i did the dpm book and he suggested we turn it into a book and a, and a clothing collection did your did your heart sink at this moment <laughs> No, because you no, know, it's something I love. It's yeah. like I love reggae music, and the opportunity to document that, you know, I saw as a great um, opportunity. You know, a great thing to do. Mm. So, and just describe the book because this was this was a bit more visual, wasn't it? Than yeah. Than
0: some of the other books that you're involved in previously.
1: Um, well, DPM was very visual, but. Um, but this is something I was given free reign on, you know, to to research, write, um, and design, produce a mixtape, um, coming up, come up with, um, you know, a small capsule collection of clothing, and and accessories. Um, so I went into the Greensleeves archive, and you know, it was great because there's stuff that, you know, there's records I had. You could you could you could look at the original artwork. Um, I interviewed the the founders of the label and and tony mcdermott who was the main album cover designer for the label so so the book was basically two interviews an interview with the two founders chris sedgwick and chris cracknell and an interview with tony mcdermott and then it was called greensleeves the first hundred covers so it was a book on their first hundred album covers um and then you know, showing other stuff from their archive, which hadn't necessarily been seen before. Right. Um, and when you said free reign, did you have full autonomy
0: on not just the research, but was this something that you had? You know, did you design this by yourself with mm-hmm. you know no input from anyone else, or
1: how did that work? Yeah, I mean, DPM really taught me a lot about all sides of of um, publishing and design and layout, although I didn't, I didn't design the template, um, you know, curating a book like that and bringing it together means if you, if you drop things in here and you know, while you're working on it, you try different layout, you try different things out. And so I got to know about layout, um, through that book and then I kind of extended that in the fashion dictionary. Um, and then this book, yeah, I did the the design and layout for the greensleeves book, too, and I realized then that i you know i was I was probably better at designing than writing um and just bringing a concept together.
0: Hmm.
1: you know I think I'm much better than that at that than creative writing,
0: yeah, yeah, so you' kind of. On this on this journey, discovering you're going for things, but then kind of honing your skills, working out what you're good at, and also what you prefer doing. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's something that you know we've you know books really is you definitely don't get into it for for money. It's definitely for the love, and it's you know you're 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 playing a long game, and I think you know often. We spent time on the phone together doing a lot of moaning <laughs> about mm. books and all the kind of unglamorous side as well that comes with it like you know we're sitting um in my garden shed slash studio where um, actually this is quite exciting because this is the first home podcast i've had all the other ones i've i've traveled so yeah thanks for making the effort to come over but yeah you know you're mainly surrounded by boxes and figuring out packaging if I asked how to bring over a an, another style of book wrap and you know all this really boring stuff around around books that, you know, when you set up publishing companies and self published that, you know, you don't really you know, you think you know, the nice side of it of course, is doing the layouts, is getting the content, is doing the research. But yeah, there's a lot of real graft and stuff that you have to go with getting accounts with distributors and setting up websites and you know if you're going to sell stuff yourself like doing it through paypal all of that kind of stuff's a headache and it takes a lot a lot of time yeah um and yeah i was going to come on to talking about your publishing company a Mm. bit later but yeah i mean may as well talk about now because that Mm. i can't remember who published that Greensleeves book and how you got it
1: out there. It sounded like another pretty niche project. It was, um well again it was published by a clothing company, Stu C. Yeah. And
0: I'm sorry, but just I, going I, back, were they were they did they already have a plan like, you know,
1: how many numbers they wanted, where they were gonna sell it, or was it kind of No, they had no book distribution and it was only sold through their stores. Right. So it was very limited. I mean, it sold out quite fast. How many did you print? I think they did 2000. Um, I mean, well, that's pretty good. Mm, but but people, you know, the real core crowd of people who were into reggae, a lot of them never saw that book because you could only get it from Stussy stores. Mm. I think Urban Outfitters might have taken it or, or very limited stores took it. Um, I wasn't really involved in that side. I just produced the book and delivered it to them, and then they sorted the printing out and and the, the the selling of it.
0: Right, and then did that. Was that kind of a frustration for you in some way? Is that what kind of spurred you on to set up your own publishing company, or were you kind of happy with that arrangement?
1: Um, yeah, I mean i i didn't get I didn't get any kind of royalty from sales. Right. I just got one fee. Mm-hmm which was not high, (laughs) Um, under the the proviso that after a year I could publish the book myself if I wanted to, which I still haven't done, but I still plan on doing it. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I've got a few, I kind of, I've done a few extra interviews to go into the second edition of that. Exciting. When can we expect that? um possibly next year because it's basically done right i just want to add a bit to it just depends on your music career <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> um so what well, yeah one, i love that book though i do love yeah that it book. is it's, yeah. it's a it's a really it's a beautiful simple and book. simple book yeah yeah really really nicely laid out and yeah maybe we can i can get some images f- from you and we can mm-hmm. put that in uh in the notes at the yeah. end would be great
1: um, I can give you a link to the mixtape perfect yeah that would be really the mixtape was great we got some dub plates done mm-hmm. um, and yeah just you know I got to design the CD and
0: that's fun and
1: the t-shirts were great as well Yeah, really good tees I always wear those tees <laughs> maybe we'll get a photo of you on the
0: podcast for your homepage on the podcast in one of those DCTs Okay. They're a bit faded now. <laughs> um We're really interested. I mean, this is the thing, we just go on and on and on talking about books, but like one of
1: the I think one of the most exciting projects. Um Oh no, but you said earlier, was I frustrated by, uh, okay, that, by yeah. them? I mean I wasn't frustrated by it, but it definitely showed me that, you know, I can now produce a book on my own. And so for the next book I decided to publish it myself because I knew that I could you know, I could I could do the work to, to deliver it to the printer. Um if you want to then do it yourself, you have to come up with the money to pay for the print run and sort out the distribution and sales. But I felt like I was at that stage by you then. You were ready. Yeah. And that book was? Um, after, after the Greensleeves book, um I did a book called Clark's in Jamaica, which was about the popularity of Clark's shoes in Jamaica. And this is an
0: extraordinary story, really. I mean, I still tell people about this book today, and so many people don't know or have never heard of this Mm -hmm. amazing happy accident and connection between Clark's and Jamaica. So Mm -hmm. there'll be a lot of people listening to this that don't know about it either, and you're the best person to
1: explain it. So yeah,
0: tell us about that
1: from the beginning. I remember I was at my friend Pierre's house and um, I'd just finished the Greensleeves book and we were kind of talking about what to do next. And the biggest dancehall tune at that time was, was, it just come out, it was called Clarks by Vibes Cartel, a dancehall artist. And it was the biggest tune I think of 2010 in Jamaica. Um, but there was another tune called "Hold You" by Egyptian. But this this one, I would say, was the biggest tune, biggest dancehall tune in Jamaica, "Clarks," and it was all about Clark's shoes. And it was so popular that within a few weeks he'd done a follow-up called "Clarks Again," <laughs> and then he did "Clarks Part Three. and these were all all of them were great tunes. And so we were talking about. That and the love and the Jamaican love for Clarks because it's like nothing you could believe. And did you know about this
0: before the Vibes Cartel tune?
1: I knew about it because I'd had Jamaican people asking me to send them Clarks. Right. And, um, you know that's the thing. Clarks Clarks has not had a presence in Jamaica since the seventies, but. So, so the way Clark's shoes get to Jamaica is from people living in the UK and living in the US sending Clark's to Jamaica. Right. Um, and so I knew about the Jamaican love for Clark's because I'd heard it also in, in song lyrics, in, in reggae tunes where they sing, you know, they might mention Clark's. But there's only there's a few tunes where, that are just solely about Clark's and this Vi- the Vibes Cartel tunes, you know, are, are an example of that. Um, so I thought this is a crazy story, you know, growing <laughs> up in England, being forced to wear clerks, you know, to go to school and, and, and hating clerks, Which is most kids experience, right? Yeah. In, in, to, to, to think in, you know, that they're the best shoes you can wear in Jamaica across all, across all ages different, uh, male and female, from doctors, teachers to gangsters. Like it's, it's also a rude boy shoe. It's a gangster shoe in Jamaica. So very different to how they're perceived in England. Um, so I just thought it was fascinating. It was a story that had never really been told. Um, so, yeah, I decided to to, to document that. Um, and, you know, when this is something that
0: interests me when you have an idea and, Mm -hmm. you know, how, how do you begin that idea? How do you even begin to think, okay, how am I going to document this? Could be a film, could be a book, Mm -hmm. whatever short documentary. Um, and I think that's, I think it's a kind of a big question for so many entrepreneurs is just starting something, you know, for, from, from nothing. So what did you do? You know, you, you were in Pierre's house talking about what a great idea this would be to yeah. let people know about this amazing marriage of Jamaica and Clark. So what did you do?
1: So I called Clarks. You just phoned up Clarks and I got this great idea. Yeah. I said, I would like to, I said, do you know that, do you know how much Jamaicans love Clarks shoes? Um I mean I was directed to the mark to someone in marketing called Gemma Green and she's one of the few people in the company I think who kind of understood the potential of of documenting this. Um so because her brother used to have a record shop in Bristol so she kind of she could see you know that it was something that could be interesting to document and um so I got together a small budget from them and a lot of clark, pairs of clerks, which I took her across to Jamaica um, with with a small team, myself and Pierre, who I just spoke about, and a photographer called Mark Reed, who's a friend of mine. And I think we just had 10 days there. Um, to basically research and document Jamaican love of Clarks. But you knew at this point it was going to be in book format? Yeah, and this was for, for a book, yeah. to produce a book. Yeah. And at first I didn't know what that book would be, and you know, I thought maybe it would just be a photographic book um, showing Jamaicans wearing Clarks, but I, I wanted to focus on the musicians especially. Mm. Because they've done a lot to promote the Jamaican love of clarks by singing about clarks and you know, like vibes cartel for example. Um, I mean, clarks has always been. It's not. It's not a fashion thing in Jamaica. It's just deeply ingrained in the culture. So it's not something that you know will ever go away. I don't think. Although I think it is po- The popularity had waned a little bit amongst younger Jamaicans. Older Jamaicans love Clarks the most. And I think the, the, the peak of the popularity was in the 80s um, and the 60s as well. But, um, you know, around that time, I think it had gone down a bit. But when Vibes Cartel came out with that tune, all the kids wanted Clarks again. <laughs> um, so I didn't really know what it would be but I knew I wanted to focus on the musicians, um, and to interview them and, and, you know, photograph them with their clerks. Um, and then, yeah, I just, when we went over there, everyone's got a story about clerks over there (laughs) and it kind of just built from there. Um, and so started by giving a short history of the brand and then how they got to Jamaica, um, yeah, and you got how some... they were banned in Jamaica. Well, they were banned? Well, they weren't banned, but um, <clears throat> the, the Jamaican government banned the importation of foreign-made, various foreign-made products, including shoes, right? Um, to promote you know, the, the local shoemaking industry. Okay. Um, and at that point, Clarks themselves, as a company, who used to be interested in the West Indies as a market, kind of gave up, and that's when, but the love for clerks in Jamaica never went away. Right. So that's when, because there's a lot of Jamaicans who live in the UK and the US, that's when they started more and more to be sent um, to Jamaica. There's never been a clerk shop in Jamaica. Still, to this day. No. So it's all about who you know in England. Yeah. You know, there's Jamaicans who I spoke to who who came because a lot of the musicians would come to Jamaica to come to England for for you know to visit family for shows um, to to license their music or whatever. And one of the main things they would want to do is go to the Clark store. And the more hardcore ones would want to go to Street in Somerset, where Clark's were made. <laughs> And some of them saw it as like a religious kind of (laughs) trick. Like they would, because they'd be in Jamaica looking at their clerks seeing Made in Somerset. I can't remember what the little emblem says, but they'd see this place Street in Somerset, which is right by Glastonbury, and think of it as a kind of holy mecca. And so when they came to the UK, (laughs) they would drive down there. It's like three hours, three or four hours from London. Amazing. To see where clerks actually came from. Yeah. And back in those days, there used to be a number of second shops because clerks used to be made in street. Now they're made in Vietnam and China and stuff. Yeah. But all the seconds used to go to these. Sh- There's one one high street in 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 the village of Street, um, and all the seconds from the factory used to be offloaded there, and Jamaicans just used to turn up there, <laughs> and basically in a white van, buy all the seconds. I mean. I wish I'd, I could have seen, like, the scenes, you know, back then, in, in the 80s especially, and, you know, buy them all up and, and send them to Jamaica in barrels, um, which is amazing. how many things get get to Jamaica. It's an amazing, yeah. amazing story. And,
0: um, I mean, obviously I've seen the book and,
1: you know, if it's, again... I mean, it actually, Greensleeves... I found in the Greensleeves archive, one of their main producers was called Henry Junjo Laws, and um, I found a receipt in their archive that showed that part of his publishing had been paid in Clark. (laughs) (laughs) So literally, they would come over with their tapes and music, or records, sell them, get money, go to the Clark shop, especially the Clark's outlet. I mean, this is before... A kind of whole outlet thing right but I think there were I think there might have been Clark's outlet shops there's one in Holloway one in Peckham so so King Jammy's favorite one was in Holloway <laughs> and they would go to these shops and spend and you know they'd come with empty suitcases fill them with Clark's and string vests Kangol's and all yeah. the other things that were made in England that they loved and then take them back and, and there's no social there's no welfare system in Jamaica, so it's very much, if a producer went to England, you know, he would want to bring stuff back for his community. Right. And Clarks was one of those things.
0: That's amazing. And do you think, uh, like hearing you talk about you know, someone being paid in Clarks all that time ago, it just made me think about, that's what you did. You know, was that part of your strategy? You, know, you took over loads of Clarks. To kind of pay these people you were going to photograph and interview in Clarks. It's like a currency over there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a big budget to be able to pay people to photograph them. So I was able to bring, I think I brought 60 pairs of Clarks. And you knew that would work. And I knew that people would, (laughs) would be very happy to get one or two pairs of Clarks. Brilliant. That is such a great story. And then...
0: I mean, I don't want to take it away from the, the, the fun parts of the stories, but I'm also interested from a from a publishing perspective. You know, this is your first venture solo, and mm-hmm. how did you then make those decisions about how many you were going to print, you know, where you were going to get it printed, how you were going to distribute it, how you were going to market and get press and sell it, all of those kind of things.
1: Did you have any idea, and did you just go on instinct? I think you just, you know, you just find your way. You speak to people who you think know, and, you know, people are very willing to help you when you're just starting out. And so you get a link to a certain printer and you kind of find your way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a plan. I just kind of, yeah, just fumbled along. (laughs) And luckily it turned out all right. I remember when I first got the proofs back and, like, I saw these, because I'd cut out all the images myself and wow. I, didn't, I didn't really know what I was doing. And obviously my screen was too bright or whatever. When I got the prints back, there was all these marks that I'd oh, no, cut out And been properly. spotting out and stuff. <laughs> and I was like, thank God I got these proofs done, because if the book had come back like that, would <laughs> a complete disaster.
0: Amazing. Yeah, kind of learning the hard way, but also trusting yourself. Yeah, Um, And, I mean, it went went really well. You got some great press and, you know, I've always been really impressed about how much, you know, a lot of people hire, you know, PR people to do their press for them, but you've got this, you're a real stickler for doing stuff yourself and for good reason because you've always been really, really good at getting press and just having that confidence, you know, like you said about the Clarks Project, phoning people up. Which I think is a really good lesson, especially these days. You know, email has its has its purpose, but to really get people's attention. I mean, you've always been a big pick up the phone guy and call someone. Yeah. And you've and you've you've got good results. I mean, I was looking at again your C V, you know, you've stuff published in in um you know, in The Guardian Times, what else have we we got here? Um independent um times literary review um bbc creative review loads of really cool um you know web resources for press and Mm -hmm. and um i mean that's something that is also a skill in itself because there's so much stuff out there now especially in the internet age and how do you i mean this is a question really how do you other than you know, coming up with a cool idea about a book, you still got to hustle. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at first...
1: you know, I What thought, are your secrets? They
0: give us your hustling techniques.
1: And that's the thing, when, you, when you're doing your own thing, on, when you're doing it all yourself, you do have to just change. You just put a different hat on and it's, your job completely changes. So when you finish your book, you know, you've done that. And you think you can rest, but actually <laughs> it's just when another part of the process begins and that's promoting the book and yeah, just getting it out to press and, and, and you slowly start to build your press links. That's why I think it's so good doing it yourself because you build those contacts yourself and then you don't have to go to a press agency because actually you have the links. Mm. Um so I'm very good at like making lists and keeping those lists for the next time. And then you just expand your list every time you do it. Sure. Um, and also, I haven't been that impressed with, with press agencies. I mean, Clark's, Clark's tried, you know, they wanted to help with the promotion of the book. So they they put me in touch with their press agency and I just thought they were awful, to be honest. Like, they didn't... They got one piece of press, which wasn't actually that good. And so that just showed me if you really want to get something done properly, you have to do it yourself. Yeah. And, it... and yeah, it was on Newsnight. Um, I mean, I think it was... The story was... It appealed to people, because in England, you know, in the UK, sorry... Um, Clark's everyone knows Clark's, but they they perceive Clark's as a kind of stuffy brand, so to see them worn by Jamaican dancehall artists and gangsters and you know it's just completely <laughs> shocking <laughs> so I think there was that interest in, in that yeah in that story so it definitely helps to get press if you have a story like that that grabs people's yeah. attention and And tell
0: us about that. I mean, the book's book's lovely in this and really lovely. I love the layout and lots of, you know, amazing quotes you got from some of these artists and and producers. But there was that one story that I really love and I I can't really quite remember it fully. It was about um, the policeman going into the dance hall and separating the crowd depending on what shoes they were
1: wearing. Was that... Remind me of that story. Um, There was a chief of police called Joe Williams and i think this was the 60s um he used to be kind of a bad man police he used to be like go around guns blazing um (laughs) and so he went into a cock uh, coxswain dance um coxswain was a a record producer and sound system operator and um king stick was the selector playing the records and joe williams came in and cut off the music and he said um everyone wearing clerks get to this side of the dance. Everyone not wearing clerks get to this side. Because he knew to round up the rude boys in the dance (laughs) and the gangsters, (laughs) they would all be wearing clerks. That was the giveaway. Yeah, so there was people in dance like taking their shoes up and throwing them away (laughs) so they wouldn't get caught. And then he lined them all up and took them down to the station and gave them a beating (laughs) just for wearing clerks. wow if any because like. back then Clarks also you know they were expensive Right. they were exclusive in exclusive shoes and also they were very well made when they were made in england they would last you for years and in, in jamaica you know it's, it, there's many there's many people in jamaica who don't have any shoes right and and walking also is a main form of transport in jamaica that so made um so if you sets. had a pair of clarks you know that you're good for like a long time because they're so well made um so they and they were hard to come by and they were expensive and rude boys and gangsters like expensive clothes so they especially would be wearing clarks so that's how um yeah he kind of It's amazing up.
0: and it's kind of extra funny because all of those things you know make total sense but when you're you know a six or eight year old kid and you're in the Clark shop and you're being told by your parents you know these are going to last you a long time it's just you don't want to hear it because you don't want to be wearing those shoes
1: yeah
0: <laughs> Matt, that is so cool um so yeah you've founded one love had a pretty impressive and successful first book but you're still doing books, sale and uh, yeah. you, you're kind of talking about your, you know, your music being your passion. But I think you know there's something in you that can't let go of of doing books. And um, yeah, maybe that's <laughs> um, true. Yeah, and it's like, you know, it is a tough one because I know for myself, like, you know, what hard work it is. But it is, you know, really, really rewarding. But I was also interested in, you know, you moving into creating books but also not just having books but all the work that goes into it is having other forms like doing exhibitions so you've created you've curated you know a few exhibitions with some of your later books um and we're just interested in you kind of moving in into that arena as well and yeah talk a bit talk a bit about that and and why you wanted to do that and you're know, getting reach. and I know you, you you got an arts council grant recently about another long-term project um, mm-hmm. that you did you know jumping ahead a little bit so yeah, talk a bit about that most recent project
1: um, well for, for me for the exhibitions they kind of go hand in hand with book like putting together a book is very much like putting together curating an exhibition you curate a book you decide what goes in it as the editor um and how it look how it's laid out how the how it's how it's the story is told in the narrative and that's the same and it just translates into an exhibition you can easily so once you've done all the work for a book it's quite easy to then extrapolate that work and that research into a visual exhibition and it's just another way of telling the story um but with the actual real life objects that people can look at rather than pictures in a book. Mm. So I just think it kind of naturally came from the work I was doing. Yeah. To translate into, into exhibitions too.
0: Yeah. And the, the kind of the big, well, the, the Wilfred Lamonius book you did, I know that was an idea that was sort of a long, a long time coming. I remember you telling me about the funny story with the, with the printers and how you kind of got in touch with them about getting a quote, and then a year later you are in touch with them again, or a few months later you are in touch with them again. And, oh, and I remember... Didn't like, the... oh, God, this guy again. <laughs> I th- and I think, I mean, this just shows, I guess, what a, a pedant to detail you are, and this book took a long time. And, of course, you were doing other projects at the same time, but didn't the rep of the printer say it was, like, the longest lead time ever <laughs> that she'd ever had in her experience of publishing?
1: Yeah,
0: so. So, yeah, if you want to work with from our off. ladies and gentlemen, you better be prepared to take some time. But it's worth it in the end.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that was a book about a um, Jamaican illustrator called Wilfred Lamonius, who, again, um, is an album... Co- well, I knew him from his album covers. Yeah. As a DJ and a record collector. You know, his some of his covers kind of comic book style, illustrated covers are some of my favourite covers. And right. also his, his hand drawn type is, is amazing. Was he seen as a, a graphic artist? Is that kind of his or an illustrator? Yeah, I mean, How he, would you describe he was him? Uh, an illustrator. He was, um, well, he started off for the Jamaican newspapers, illustrating comics, so he was a cartoonist. Um, and then he began working for Jamal, which was the Jamaican movement for the advancement of literacy to the um, the National Literacy Programme. And then in the early 80s, he began doing album covers and he kind of defined the aesthetic for dancehall music, really. Um, Very loud, kind of bright colours, hilarious um, comics um, and yeah, just some great, great album covers. So, but he's someone, you know, if you looked him up online you would literally find nothing about him. Right. Apart from maybe one or two sites that tried to, you know, compile a list of all the covers he'd done. There really wasn't anything. Um, so <clears throat> uh, it was something I w- I'd always wanted to do, you know, especially having done the Greensleeves book and Tony McDermott was a kind of, in a way, the UK version of Lemonius. He did quite similar cover uh, illustrated um comic book style covers but in the uk um so yeah i I always loved lemonius's covers and then i think i I came across this blog um written by a canadian guy called chris bateman and i could see that he he had started this research into lemonius's life and um so i contacted chris and said do you want to work on a book together And yeah, that one took a while. (laughs) Um but but I think we did him justice, hopefully.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a a beast of a book and Yeah. Um yeah, I've seen you talk about it and again it's another really interesting story and I mean you can definitely say your your um passion is niche books.
1: Mm And then we often
0: talk about like available dot coms but I don't niche books wasn't available was it (laughs) when you were looking (laughs) one love books I don't especially love (laughs) niche books but I seem to produce some yeah it's true yeah yeah definitely (laughs) um and again that one I mean one day they'll cross over (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's true um and uh I mean coming you know coming to an end towards the end of the podcast you know I, I sort of mentioned it in the beginning about you know people's journeys and you look back over the last sort of 15 15 years and you know you've it's evolved and you've kind of worked on so many different fronts as you know the designer an editor a curator and um, you know as a as a freelancer something that I think, well, it's interesting, isn't it? You get people that just come to it very naturally. They're very driven. They know what they want to do. And then you get a lot of other people that have worked in industry for a long time and they've been salaried and and then, you know, they just want a change of career, but they're... Often the biggest thing is fear, right? Where are they going to get that work or how are they going to make make it work? I mean, what is that something that, you know, you think about a lot in terms of... You know where you're going to get your money from. You know how you're going to survive. Obviously, living in London, or li- I mean, living anywhere really, as a freelancer, challenging. But do you think, you know, what what kind of what kind of drives you creatively? Um,
1: just you know, documenting the things that I love, and and I've got a genuine interest for. And stuff that I would like to read about, um, but I, I do have that worry and fear of, you know, where's the next money going to come from? Mm. But I try not to dwell on that too much because, it, you know, it just it just comes, you know, out of unexpected places, doesn't it? You yeah. just got, but you just got to believe that it's going to. Yeah, when you, you do, do. You see your bank balance go down and down. And you're like, down. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, somehow it works, but it's definitely not a profession that you're going to be dripping in money. No. Like books. You know, it's it's hard mm-hmm. selling books. Yeah. For sure. No matter what the quality is. Well, niche books anyway. Yeah, sure. Sure. But I guess you're going to...
0: I think it's... Something that I've definitely found about your work is it's, you know, utterly authentic. You know, there's nothing, it's just for, it's for everything in it is, you know, you really completely pouring yourself into it, like not doing anything by halves. And I think that's probably, you know, for anyone interested in going into any area of freelance, that's probably something, whether it's books or music or whatever it is, that you have to do really. You have to kind of, be completely authentic with it. I mean, I guess there are always things, you know, if a job comes up that, you know, a design job or whatever, that's going to give you a good day rate, you're going to take it on because that would be, you know, it might not be completely your passion. I think there's probably very few people in the world that can live entirely doing exactly, you know, 100% Mm -hmm. what they want to do. But yeah, I think... Yeah, I I just I think it's, it's interesting hearing that because I hear it over and over again. It's something that I struggle with a bit as well with you know the confidence and you are thinking oh where's that where's that next bit of money going to come from? But you do really have to just believe that 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 it will and um, but somehow like it doesn't make it any easier. Especially as we're both in our forties now, it's still kind of just kind of the same stuff. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I kind of grew up thinking. You know, when I was a kid that, um, you know, your parents had a car. And so when I'm old, I'll just have a car. But, you know, I never kind of thought that they probably had anxieties about paying for insurance and fuel and, oh, is it going to break down? And all the things that you have, like, as an adult. But as a kid, you just kind of think, oh, these things are just easy, but they're not. (laughs) No. It's true. Yeah. So it's a challenge. So my last... Couple of questions. Mm-hmm. Are um, I mean, there's so much stuff we haven't talked about. You're doing this like T-shirt project at the moment, and yeah. So what what is next? Kind of short term and long term. Um, if you think, if you think, you know, that far ahead, I'm talking. You know, tell us a bit about what you're doing now, and then talk about you know uh, what you'd like to be doing in five years. If you think that far ahead.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, right now I'm trying to finish off a book. With a photographer um who's also was a friend of mine before we started working together um, and I'm also trying to plan a touring exhibition of his work uh, for next year um, I mean it does get easier like when you're first for example working trying to tour an exhibition say or get a get an exhibition schedule together before you apply for funding. You know, it's daunting because you don't know anyone the first time. And then you slowly begin to make links with um, programming, you know, with managers and Mm. people at galleries. And so then it's much, and then once they see the quality of your work, it's much easier the next time. Yeah. Um, So at the moment I'm trying to plan a, a tour of his work for next year um and yeah i've had a meeting recently for what should be a good show well i can't say much about that at the moment
0: okay um non-disclosure
1: agreement (laughs) (laughs) but yeah just trying to kind of plan for next year at the moment and yeah push along this um this t-shirt uh well clothing brand that i've recently partnered with a friend um, in. And that's connected to Lamonius as well, right? Uh, no. Oh, I thought some of the t-shirts. I know t-shirts... we did. We did um, for Lamonius. We did. So we did a collaboration with with a clothing company called Supreme. Okay. Yeah. And um, I mean, that's the best I could have hoped for, to be honest. Yeah. I've always wanted to work with Supreme, and so I was very lucky to have that chance to do a collection of Lamonius t-shirts mm-hmm. with Supreme um but yeah i'd love for this t-shirt brand i'm working trying to develop now to you know even reach half the heights that supreme which must be one of the biggest brands in the world yeah um so yeah just trying to push things along in five years i don't know i've hoped to be just making music. <laughs> no Five books. Years. No more
0: books. No more books. Just making music. Well, Al, maybe we'll get you. No, back. I do
1: love books. You know that, but of course, it's just you know how much work they are for sure.
0: But maybe, maybe if well, I had a an mus- album,
1: is the same. Now, yeah, exactly. It? I was going to
0: say if I brought a musician on here. And they were talking about making an album and the trials and tribulations. They'd be like, "I'd just love to sit and write a book, you know, (laughs) because it'd be so much nicer." (laughs) Um, But maybe, um, well, maybe we'll get you back on on the podcast if you know this podcast is a roaring success and I start getting like millions of downloads and sponsorship and stuff. (laughs) We can come back on as a musician and you'll reach a massive audience. Oh, I'm sure there's, there's loads we missed, but we've, uh, we've been going for over an hour now and wow. I really thank you and appreciate your time coming well, over and, and sharing your story, which is, which is such a great one and inspiring one. So, um, yeah, we'll put up um, some links in, on your page and, and uh, hope that the conversation doesn't end there. So, yeah, thanks again for coming along. Thanks, Matt. Well, I think that went pretty well. It's funny, given that I've known Al for more than 25 years, you never know how the energy will flow in an interview setting. But talking with Al was another reminder about embarking on a freelance creative lifestyle in that the work comes first. And of course, the financial side can't be ignored. You have to make it pay. But striking that balance between what you want to do and making it work so you can survive is so important. So, to find out more about Al, you can visit onelovebooks.com. You can also buy his books there. Um, there's also a link to the mixtape he mentioned on his podcast page uh, on the site, which I listened to recently, and it's, um, it's amazing. Um, to find out more about me, you can visit matthewmoran.com. I've just released a whole new set of dates for workshops in 2018 which could make a nice Christmas present for somebody who wants to learn more about photography in a beautiful setting like Hampstead Heath. Um, And yes, to keep up on social media, it's Matthew Moran Photography. That's the Facebook page. And on Twitter and Instagram, same handle at Matt Moran Photo. So stay tuned. I'll let you know about the next guest in a few days. I'm hoping to do this interview in a few days Uh, can't guarantee it's a he's a very busy person um but uh also has a lot of really interesting stories to tell so can't wait to do that one too and um thanks again for listening and it's been a lot of fun and hopefully we will catch up again soon all the best take care bye bye